Do you know what overshoot is? I'm overshoot means to, well, basketball. Overshoot the basket. Is that like the leap year? Overshoot? No, I don't know anything about it. No. Any idea what that might mean? I hope you'll tell me. Was that even on your mind today as you were getting ready to order breakfast? Well, I'm not ignorant to that. Had you heard of that? No, never have. What is that? Overshoot? I have no idea. Shooting over something? (laughs) What about overshoot? Any ideas what they're talking about? Nope, none. I have no idea. If we are, in fact, there, obviously, it's uh, humanity's use of resources. I have never heard of the word. Overshoot? So is it like... Is it where it goes too far and like the stars? Like, I'm confused. Can you explain it? Overshoot. We'll learn what it is, how we got here, and what that means for us and our children on this Conversation Earth special. Welcome to Overshoot. Have a nice day. I'm Dave Gardner. Earth Overshoot Day for the entire planet in 2020 is August 22nd. What is Overshoot? What's pretty clear, Overshoot is not very well understood and relatively few people think we're experiencing it today. I was a kid in 1970 when the first Earth Day was observed. Marine biologist Rachel Carson had alerted us that we were poisoning our planet. The air in our cities was brown. The Cuyahoga River in Cleveland had caught fire a year earlier, for the 13th time. Joni Mitchell was singing about our impact on the planet. Zager and Evans weren't optimistic that human civilization would long survive. But I was just a kid, so I assumed the adults would take care of it. Well, fast forward 50 years, and I don't see a lot of success on that front. The UN is issuing a dire warning. Up to a million plant and animal species are facing extinction. Gargantuan report reaching frightening conclusions. More people are eating more meat than ever before. Drawing from this aquifer, the source of water for several decades now, and now we're down to the very bottom. And more bad news. Fisheries total yields have declined strongly. Damaging soil, contaminating water, and ultimately draining our global resources. The numbers are alarming. In mid-May, thermometers hit 29 degrees Celsius. Three quarters of all the land on Earth has been significantly altered. And demand is projected to double. Freshwater biodiversity decreased about 80%. According to a new report, we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. These experts claim it's the 11th hour. We must act now. World scientists issued a stern warning in 2017, largely because we ignored their first warning in 1992. In 2018, a UN IPCC report sounded the alarm that our society must make immediate, dramatic, fundamental changes in our ways if we're to avoid climate catastrophe. 2019 saw a UN Global Biodiversity Assessment warn that the style and scale of human activity on the planet is likely to push a million other species into extinction. These are just a few samples from the many scientific reports that are almost becoming routine. Their message is coming into sharper and sharper focus. 
The environmental fixes we undertook in the 1960s and 70s gave us a false sense of security. Were they flawed? Or were they simply overwhelmed by the relentless expansion of the human enterprise? After all, we doubled the Earth's population and more than quadrupled the size of the global economy since that first Earth Day in 1970. It was easy for people with expanding opportunities to imagine that opportunities were forever and unlimited. When we surpassed carrying capacity, we were able to supplement it by turning some substances that didn't used to be resources into resources with technological changes, things that we didn't find useful originally, we now made useful. That seemed like we were expanding carrying capacity, so we seemed to think there was no such thing as a carrying capacity limit. That was the late sociologist William Catton in a 2009 interview. Catton authored the book Overshoot, published in 1980, about our society's footprint stretching well beyond the Earth's ability to meet our demands without damaging the planet. Pursuing that hope, we went on to surpass any real carrying capacity, by which I mean the enduring ability of an environment to support human beings living whatever way of life they're living. Overshoot is a term that appeared often in a landmark study performed by a team of scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It was published in 1972 under the title, The Limits to Growth. Computer models tracked population, agricultural production, natural resources, industrial production, and pollution. The team was led by Dennis Meadows. We started getting results that showed the growth in prosperity and population and so forth, which most of us had come to take for granted in the 70s, didn't have long to run. Our computer-generated scenarios all showed this growth stopping in the early decades of the 21st century. And I must say, looking back now, it seems like we're right on schedule. The Limits to Growth was a best-selling book in 1972. Report attracted a phenomenal amount of attention the book was translated into about 35 languages. Of course, a great deal of the response was critical. Our work challenged the foundations of modern economic theory. It made life for politicians very uncomfortable and threatened the corporations who were looking to increase their markets. So all of them, especially the economists, really lit out after our work and criticized it roundly. In spite of that, it was mostly ignored and soon forgotten by many economists, policymakers, journalists, and the general public. The result, which I think was probably foreordained, was that really nothing much has happened. Population and industrial growth actually accelerated after our report, and now we're very far above sustainable levels. In 2003, another team of analysts started tracking the biocapacity of the Earth and the demand humankind places on that biocapacity, which they termed our ecological footprint. Ecological footprint analysis had been conceived in the 1990s by two men, doctoral student Matis Wackernagel and Professor William Rees, a population ecologist and director of the School of Community and Regional Planning at the University of British Columbia. Everybody has an ecological footprint, whether they're conscious of it or not. Just think of the patch of land needed to grow your food, and then multiply that by every other product that involves any organic material. And then think of the wastes that we produce that have to be assimilated by nature. 
And when you add all of this up, you have an area of ecosystems dedicated to supporting just you in the style of which you're accustomed. And that is your ecological footprint. The most recent data estimates the average ecological footprint of a person living in the United States is about 20 acres. If you can imagine each American standing and surrounded by a 20-acre plot, you could barely see your neighbors. Here we are cheek to jowl. We have this false impression that we live in high density, relatively free from the environment. But the simple reality is that every one of us in a city has these umbilical cords of the transportation networks bringing to us the products of nature. And of course, every time you flush the toilet, you're dumping wastes into the system that then go out to the global commons, into the oceans. When you drive your car, it's into the global commons, into the atmosphere. So it's invisible. Reese's student and Ecological Footprint co-originator, Matis Wagernagel, went on to found the Global Footprint Network in 2003. Think of a forest. A forest has huge stocks of trees. And uh, what we take out in a year is much, much less than the stock that is standing in the forest. So we can, for quite a long time, deplete the forest more than what it regenerates. Uh, but if we have a good forester that keeps account and says how many trees are actually growing, are they growing at the same rate as we are depleting the forest, then we can manage the forest sustainably. Overshoot is when we use more from nature than nature can renew. I think through human history, very much on a local basis, we overused one area and that we moved on. What's new today is that we do it on a global basis. Dennis Meadows. It's interesting, and I often do look back to think about how it played out. Back in the early 70s, the main goal globally, as far as we could tell, was just to slow things down so that we could come to a rest sustainably within the limits of the planet. Now, by many measures, the global economy and the global population are so far above sustainable levels that the goal isn't to slow down, but to get back down. William Reese again. The fact that humans have, on average, exceeded the bioproductive capacity of the planet shows up in all of the trends that you read about daily in the paper. Longtime environmental journalist Rex Weiler. We're 80% through many fish species. We've destroyed the cod fishery in the North Atlantic. And you used to be able to pick up, you know, copper nuggets off beaches in North America, and now we're scrounging the world for the next copper mine. Every oil field on the planet, every major oil field on the planet is in decline. Uh, we're lopping off mountaintops in order to get deeper for coal. We're running out of phosphorus. We're going to have peak phosphorus soon enough, which is absolutely essential for our agricultural system. So have we met the limits to growth? Yes, indeed we have. Economist Kate Rayworth wrote the book Donut Economics. We are putting so much pressure on this extraordinary planet that we begin to kick its fundamental systems out of kilter. We cause climate change, ocean acidification, massive biodiversity loss, convert too much of the land's surface into human use, air pollution, chemical pollution, a hole in the ozone layer. How is it we can operate human civilization in a state of overshoot? Once the cupboard is bare, there's nothing for dinner. William Reese explains. Let's say you've got a million bucks in the bank at 5%. If you live on $50,000 a year, you can do that in perpetuity. And you'd be in a steady state, a stable situation. 
But the first year you spend $60,000, then your capital has been decreased and the interest the next year will be a little less. Well, then you spend $70,000 and then $80,000 and then $90,000. Well, you can keep doing that for a period of time, but each time you go over the amount that, of interest you're getting each year, you're drawing down your capital. And essentially that's what we're doing in the planet as well. When you hear fish stocks collapsing uh, and the oceans generally are in decline, it's because we're over-harvesting fish. When you hear of acidification of the oceans, it's because we've exceeded the capacity of the oceans to absorb carbon dioxide. When we hear of the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, particularly carbon dioxide, again, we've exceeded the carbon sink capacity of the ecosphere. Matis Wackernagel. Overshoot is possible for some time, but you start to deplete the underlying strength of nature and uh, nature will be able to produce less and your demand is higher and eventually the physical constraints will force us to kind of consume less as a whole. So overshoot will end whether we like it or not and the big question is whether we do it by design or disaster. We can choose ourselves or we will be told how to do it, told by nature. What really determines the footprint of humankind on the planet? Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich has been studying, writing, and speaking on the subject of human impact and overshoot since the 1960s. How you measure the impact of a population on its life support systems, that is, on the ecosystems that support the economy, that support our lives, uh, is by looking at basically three driving factors. One is the size of the population. Obviously, if you have five people, your impact on life support systems is going to be less than if you have five billion people. So the formula is I equals P times A times T. P is the population. I is the impact. P is the population size. A is affluence. It's basically how much each person consumes. If you have five million people driving Hummers, you have more impact than if you have five million people walking to work. So P, population, times affluence or per capita consumption, times T, which is the technologies that you use to service the consumption. William Reese again. So we've got a situation in which we're seeing the growth in human technological capacity and human populations and the scale of the economy that's completely unprecedented. Paul Ehrlich again. Humanity in the last few hundred years has become the dominant animal on this planet. Uh, we are changing and have changed the atmosphere to the point where we're threatening our very sustainability. We have are now mobilizing most minerals more rapidly than the natural forces of erosion by wind and water. We are causing an extinction of the working parts of our life support systems, that is the other animals and the plants and the microorganisms of the planet at a scale unseen in the last 65 million years. What makes us so dominant? Reese and Ehrlich gave us the formula. It's both our behavior and how many of us are doing the behaving, or misbehaving, as it turns out. Economic throughput is a pretty good measure of our behavior's impact. Brian Check, a conservation biologist turned economist, studied this phenomenon and wrote three good books about it. The Endangered Species Act, Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train, and Supply Shock. Economic growth absolutely entails, requires more and more use of natural resources, and also entails greater and 
greater stream of pollutants. It's very important to make sure we're on the same page in terms of what the phrase economic growth means. The main definition of it is simply increasing production and consumption of goods and services. It's more housing starts. It's more miles traveled. It's more manufactured goods, and it's more agricultural and extractive surplus. It's more of uh, entertainment set, you name it. It's the integrated economy growing because more of its products are, are being produced and consumed. The growth of that integrated economy entails growth of its foundation of the agricultural and extractive surplus. And that equates directly to liquidation, if you will, of our natural capital stocks, woods, water, soils, fisheries, minerals, petroleum, things that uh, prior to their liquidation simply comprised habitats for non-human species, wildlife, biodiversity, if you will. The process of production and consumption costs us a lot as society as well as benefits us and so it may not be a, a prosperous thing to continue to grow the national and global economies. It's not common knowledge that economic growth comes at such a great cost. Growing our economic activity is heralded daily as a universal public policy goal. Strong and growing GDP growth and improving consumer real income growth. We just got to juice this and pump it up and get it going faster. You want to grow the economy. I think we're going to see a spike to growth. Holiday spending plans surge. We've never seen numbers like this. It's good for America when the consumer spends money. With that in mind, stores are stocking up, adding inventory in the hopes that the gifts will fly out the door. Got to be growing and grow right. our way out of this problem. A pretty robust economy. And restore growth and prosperity. President Trump and former President Obama arguing over who should get credit for the economy, a critical issue for the midterms. A plan that will help grow our economy. We have to stimulate the economy. A fiscal stimulus plan that will jumpstart economic growth. This knocked on it, reflected on the president's economic approval rating. The hope is that little bit of extra money in everyone's pockets could translate into real spending power. This could be the best year for auto sales in a decade. If the United States uh-huh. could average 3.2% growth over the next four years. Oh, well, that would be fantastic. Give- and there seems to be a fair amount of optimism going into Black Friday and this first holiday shopping weekend. Our consumer spending accounts for a major portion of the economy, about 70%. So the more we spend, the better off in some respects the economy is. The economy- we one good quarter of GDP. But that forgets that last quarter and all of last year was mediocre. When you look at large SUVs, the biggest guzzlers, up 12.4% last year. Our job now is putting our economy into overdrive. I think that's exactly what the Trump campaign has to be focusing on. The economy, the economy, the economy. It's interesting to think about why the average citizen, although they may not be talking professionally about economic policy and so forth, nevertheless are exposed very constantly in American society to supporting the goal of economic growth as national policy. I mean, take the evening news. Very often there will be a report on the trend of the stock market for that day. And invariably, an upward trend is viewed as a good thing and a downward trend as a bad thing. 
The stock market is one of the primary indicators. Housing starts uh, is another indicator. Of course, employment itself. No one thinks twice when they turn on the news and the theoretically objective newscaster begins each economic piece of economic news by saying, good news today on the economic front, the economy has grown larger. He never comes on and says, bad news today on the economic front, housing starts are up 12%, even though you could just as easily make the argument that the next increment of subdivisions is bad news as much as good. That was environmental journalist Bill McKibben, preceded by Brian Check. We're not getting the bad news about economic growth because it's hard to believe. We've had a good run in which economic growth accompanied a lot of improvements in our lives. Bill McKibben explains. The real powerful growth in economies began in the early 18th century with the discovery of how to utilize fossil fuel. Up until that time, economic growth, if it existed at all, had been very slow. Keynes once estimated that in all of history before then, perhaps sort of human standard of living had doubled over the course of that whole time. With the birth of the fossil fuel age came the sudden liberation of immense amounts of work that could be done for free based on millennia of stored fuel. That made it very possible suddenly to expand dramatically, and we have. For a long time, more and better, we're pretty much in the same direction. When we were really poor, each increment of economic prosperity brought with it a certain quanta of human satisfaction, too. We like indoor plumbing, electricity, planes, trains, and automobiles. So, over the last 200 years, we fell in love with economic growth. In the 20th century, growth became a major public policy goal. Karen Higgs documented the history of our obsession with economic growth in her book, Collision Course. We've been in a world where governments and business together pushing for more growth and presenting growth as the solution to whether it's poverty, unemployment, debt, joblessness, uh, anything, pollution. Everything will be solved by growth. Gus Speth helped launch and has led several top global environmental and economic NGOs, including the Next System Project. In the 1970s, he served as a White House advisor to U.S. President Jimmy Carter. We're certainly addicted to economic growth. Our political system doesn't know how to get along without it. It's the answer to everybody's problems. If we don't have enough jobs, we can just grow faster. And on down, if the government needs money to pay for the entitlement programs that we've created, we will need to grow faster to generate that tax revenue. And on and on. Brian Check. Prosperity seems to be equated in policy terms with the macroeconomic goal of growth, economic growth, increasing production and consumption of goods and services. And of course, in the case of prosperity, while that should be the case, we wouldn't want things to be prosperous. The problem is in equating prosperity with increasing production and consumption of goods and services. It's true that 
the average citizen doesn't think a lot about economic policy, but they also don't think a lot about ecology and limits to economic growth and the relationship between economic growth and environmental protection. So naturally to them, anything that would have the propensity to increase the number of dollars in their wallets, for example, would be viewed generally as a good thing. Former World Bank senior economist Herman Daly has been called the grandfather of ecological economics. He co-wrote in 1994, For the Common Good, Redirecting the Economy Toward Community, the Environment, and a Sustainable Future. Well, I think right now we need to change uh, what is our answer to all of our problems. We see the answer to all of our problems is growth. You have unemployment, you want growth. You have poverty, you want growth. You have overpopulation, you say, well, we need to grow to kick the demographic transition going, so that requires more growth. Environmental uh, decay and disruption, you want more growth to pay the costs of cleaning up the environment. So er the answer to every problem is growth. Well, we need to stop and say, wait a minute. Now, is growth really making us richer? Or is it making us poorer? Maybe, isn't it at least possible that at the current margin, growth, physical growth, is increasing costs faster than it's increasing benefits? If that's so, it's making us poor. Ian Johnson is a former vice president and before that senior economist at the World Bank. He was secretary general of the Club of Rome when I spoke to him in 2012. That was the 40th anniversary of the Limits to Growth study, which was commissioned by the Club of Rome. I think we've moved very much from thinking that the nature of our problems are purely environmental. They are environmental, and we are looking at a world where we're depleting many of our natural resources at historic and unprecedented rates. But at the same time, we have to look at the underlying causes. Why is that happening? Well, part of it is that we have more people on Earth. Part of it is we have more demands from people who have much less than we have and have a right, an inherent right, to have a standard of living that is higher quality than they have today. They must have food on the table, they must have clean water, they should have decent jobs and a decent lifestyle for them and their children. So we have to respect and understand that. That brings us immediately into sort of the economic sphere. And we have to understand that the way we are charting our course on our economic policies, on economic growth, for example, is simply wrong. We have got to re-engineer our thinking about economics. Bill McKibben. Human beings have used more natural resources since the end of World War II than in all of human history before. We've gone through an unprecedented binge of producing and consuming everything we possibly can. Kate Rayworth reminds us why the size of our economy matters. The economy is a subsystem of the living world, dependent upon it. And we must ask straight away, how big can that through-flow of materials matter be before it begins to disrupt the very living processes on which we depend for life, the functioning of this extraordinary living world? That's the fundamental question of ecological economics. It never actually comes up in mainstream economics because the diagrams don't even let us see that that question is there. William Reese again. I often ask an audience, how many of you in here think it's possible to have infinite economic growth in a finite space? Not a hand will go up. And yet that's exactly what we are pretending we can do. 
Paul Ehrlich again. Oh, I think we work against ourselves in many ways. And a lot of it has to do with this thought that only economic growth can bring people happiness. Only bigger communities will help because it increases the tax base. We never sit back and ask the question of what the hell are people for? What do you want with your life? I can see changes in my own lifetime. When Anne and I were married, it was still barely possible for uh, me to work while she, at the beginning, raised our young daughter. Now almost all couples have to uh, uh, both work in order to make ends meet. And that's why we're having this wonderful economic growth. It's just nonsensical. I mean, I think most people would much prefer to have a relaxed life, to be able to uh, have good friends and have an adequate supply of food and booze and so on, make love when they want to, not only on the weekends, and have a very different kind of life. But we have been persuaded, uh, particularly by control of the media, by large corporations and so on, uh, to uh, believe that you have to keep running ever faster in place to get more and more junk to consume. You can design a different system. Somebody's got to do it, but can you get anyone to adopt it as long as almost all the pressure is in the opposite direction? Sociology professor Juliet Shore has studied this subject. She wrote, The Overspent American, Why We Want What We Don't Need, Born to Buy, The Commercialized Child and the New Consumer Culture, and Plenitude, The New Economics of True Wealth. We have focused so intently in this country, especially on getting more and more and more money. And we've had a culture over the last few decades in which that's been absolutely the most important thing. And in the process, we have eroded, undermined a variety of other sources of wealth which are equally, if not more important, for ensuring well-being. When you degrade ecosystems in order to make money, you're not really getting wealth. You're, you're running down one kind of wealth, natural wealth, in order to produce another kind of wealth, financial wealth. And if you go too far in that, you undermine the basis of life itself. And that's part of what's happening now in the planetary economy. We are so deranging our climate system and biodiversity and other the ocean ecosystems that we are undermining the basis on which we live. There's a kind of consumer treadmill that we're on, too, in which there's a, just a continual upscaling of what's normal. Most of us try to live to some consumer norm. We're affected by what people around us have and buy, and that's a big part of how we set our own standards of, of adequacy. And so if everybody else is getting a cell phone, you want a cell phone, and then there, be, there are practical reasons why you want to have a cell phone, too. Uh, the same with computer, the same with uh, an upscaled kitchen, the same with you know, a car with all the accoutrements and so forth. People don't like to be left behind, and there's a real social penalty to be paid if you're a person who doesn't keep up with a, an escalating consumer norm. When we consume, whatever it is we consume, we are degrading ecosystems, or we are pumping carbon into the atmosphere, we are losing species, we're cutting down trees, we're... Um, defouling oceans and so forth. So we're running harder and harder in search of a higher and higher consumer lifestyle, which isn't yielding all that much in the way of well-being and which is destroying the planet. You're listening to Welcome to Overshoot. Have a nice day. A one-hour special from Conversation Earth. We've explored the role of consumption and the economy in Overshoot. I asked Global Footprint Network founder Matis Wackernagel about population's role in ecological footprint and overshoot. Over the long haul, the 
biggest, most significant factor of all has been how many people we are overall. So it doesn't make big changes from one year to the next, but in a cumulative way, it has a very, very big weight. Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich again. Well, some people seem to think you can solve the problem, say, by ignoring population growth, but concentrating on reducing each person's level of consumption. Well, you could do that, except there are a couple things wrong with it. One is we're already way, way above what the planet can sustain in the long term. So we ought to be working on all three factors. Two is, of course, if you manage somehow to half each person's consumption on average, and of course there's a couple billion people who consume so little now, if you have them, they die. But you allow population size to double, you haven't gained at all. Because if you have half as much consumption per person, but twice as many persons, you're right where you started from. John Seeger is president and CEO of Washington-based NGO Population Connection. But it's not bears or chipmunks who are driving those Hummers or Priuses around. It's we humans. And if you look over the last uh, 20 centuries at human population growth and you draw the chart and it looks like a J, it's, it's going up, and you do a chart of fossil fuel emissions, it's literally the same line. It's not two different lines. They superimpose one on the other. So fossil fuel emissions are a function of human population growth. And unlike some of the really thorny, complex issues around carbon, we know today how to address human population growth through voluntary means. So it's certainly the lowest hanging fruit right now. So aside from the overconsumption we've been embracing because of our love affair with economic growth, we have nearly 8 billion people on the planet who, at the very least, need food, shelter, water, and energy. And that is taking its toll. One of the most commonly referenced estimates of a sustainable world population was done by Cornell Professor of Population Ecology, David Pimentel. He estimated a world population of 2 billion, living modest but decent lives, would keep us out of overshoot. Regardless of what the actual number might be, it's pretty clear the number is less than today's world population of almost 7.8 billion. It's clear we need to embrace, celebrate, and even encourage lower birth rates in order to lead our population down toward a sustainable, non-overshoot level. Yet the myths around economic growth pop up even on the population front to yet again stand in the way of getting out of overshoot. Bill Ryerson, president of Population Media Center and chair of Population Institute, explains. For the last couple of decades, there have been a lot of economic journalists and uh, business people, particularly in Europe and Japan, wringing their hands over what has become known as the birth dearth. And of course, Europe and Japan have below replacement level fertility. And so people have been saying, wow, we're going to have the baby boom aging and going through retirement years with a very small working population. How are they going to maintain these people? There are many people ever since Julian Simon who have thought, well, the more population there is, the more consumers there will be. And so we should just keep population growing and growing. And perhaps there are no limits or that we won't hit the limits anytime soon. So don't worry about population. You know, it should drive economic welfare. And in fact, Stephen Forbes wrote an editorial in Forbes magazine saying, yes, population growth is a good thing because it creates more consumers, and where there's population growth, it should stimulate economic growth. 
This pro-population growth bias among policymakers, influencers, and journalists obstructs a key exit from overshoot. Without the bias, declining birth rates on a full planet might be reported as good news. Instead, we get this moment from PBS NewsHour. The lowest number of recorded births in 30 years, the largest single drop since 2010, it paints a pretty grim picture. Whoopi Goldberg on the TV talk show The View. Unless we are able to get around this, the population is going to be way too old to work. Megan McCain on The View. As bad as it is here, it's exponentially worse in Japan, so that should make everyone feel a little better. And Paul Ryan, when he was Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. People. This is going to be the new economic challenge for America. People. Baby boomers are retiring. I did my part, but, but you know, we need to have higher birth rates in this country. It's no wonder Earth Overshoot Day keeps moving earlier, year after year. Matis Wackernagel's Global Footprint Network estimates when Earth Overshoot Day occurs. We mark every year the day when humanity has used from January 1st to that date as much as Earth can renew in the entire year. That date has crept earlier, year after year. In 2019, it was July 29th, three days earlier than 2018. But in 2020, the date shifted three weeks later to August 22nd. Why? Because the global economy took a major pause due to the coronavirus. We can't do this for long. Just one example of the urgency of getting out of overshoot, the climate disruption we're experiencing because we've been generating more greenhouse gases than the Earth can process. Matis Wackernagel told me Earth Overshoot Day would be 93 days later if we could cut the carbon component of our footprint in half. William Catton told me why he wrote Overshoot in the late 1970s. We needed to recognize that we had had a uh, cornucopian myth that shaped our lives, that we had this notion of limitless resources, and that that had enabled us to, and in fact had goaded us into, exceeding carrying capacity. William Reese. Well, I, I guess our best hope is that the, the, the signs that the Earth is under stress are becoming evident daily. Capitalism happens to be very good at producing a lot of cheap goods and services, but it's been built entirely on the idea that you can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate indefinitely. Well, we now know that that's not possible. This time in history may be the first time that a whole global civilization has had to sit down and deliberately rewrite what we call the um, cultural mythology. So we've written a narrative that was fine in the 19th century. It served us well through much of the 20th century, if you think that material growth is the goal of all life. But it's outdated, and we now need a new cultural narrative The evidence is very clear that human activity is of a type and scale that is overwhelming the Earth's life-supporting ecosystems. Can we correct this? If so, how? The math is simple. We need to reduce our numbers or scale back our activities, or both. Bill Catton. In effect, what we have to do is to downsize ourselves. We simply have to live with less, and we have to do fewer things, and we have to be less ambitious in uh, living a high-powered way of life. We have to try to do more with less or do less if that's what it takes in order to use 
smaller quantities of limited resources. We have to try to get away from the dependence that has developed so extensively within the 20th century on the use of non-renewable resources. And we certainly have to learn that our use of non-renewable resources caused us to start using even the renewable resources faster than their normal rates of renewal. We simply have been drawing down supplies that uh, are not being replaced, can't be replaced at the rates at which we've been using them. I asked historian Karen Higgs if there isn't an easy button for getting out of overshoot. So if we don't want to end economic growth because it's going to be so hard and we're so in love with it and we don't want to embrace uh, Herman Daly's idea of a steady state economy, is there something else we can do? Is there some uh, magical solution like can we innovate our way around this? Can we use technology? Can we just go green? I'm very skeptical about that, Dave. Look, I think that innovation could be incredibly useful in moderating the ill effects of the headlong growth, especially as we get closer to, you know, tipping points. But there has always been a paradox about innovation. The economists call it the Jeevans paradox. What it means is that whenever we've achieved efficiencies and found new ways to economise, get more out of less, we just keep growing faster anyway. Because the growth trajectory just takes it up and uh, continues on. So I really don't believe that innovation is a get-out-of-jail-free card. The more that we can actually reduce the carbon intensity of our uh, production system, the better. But the rate at which we would have to do it to allow us to go on growing indefinitely is, uh, it, again, it's magical thinking. It's beyond reality. It can't happen. Your book was published in 2014, and you wrote at the time that our path needs hard scrutiny. Why is that? Right. Well, for, for anyone born at the end of World War II or since, we have grown up amongst galloping economic growth, and it looks incredibly natural. It looks like it's the way the world always was, and this is an incredible obstacle to perception or to awareness. And at the same time, then, we have our governments, politicians, media, the constant barrage of growth, growth, growth. Also, it seems to people that it's necessary, that it's desirable. We all want a, a higher standard of living, we think, and it, we need to grow, therefore, to create the jobs that are needed by the uh, expanding populations. So we want all these things, we think. Uh, it must be done. So it's a kind of magical thinking. If it fails to see reality, it's definitely not practical. Before he passed away, I asked Overshoot author William Catton whether he thought there was a good chance we would make the necessary adjustments to our system. I think it needs to change drastically. Whether it will change rapidly enough for it to be a, a soft landing or whether we're going to have a crash landing, it's hard to say. Uh, we're still, I think, pretty heavily conditioned to the idea that... Uh, Progress is forever. I asked ecological economist Herman Daly what he thought the solution might be. Well, there may not be a solution. I can't say that I'm terribly optimistic that all this is going to come about. On the other hand, I think one has a, um, a kind of a duty to be hopeful and to at least try to offer some ideas and policies that could work. I don't understand 
the view that people take, and I know many economists do, that, well, this is politically impossible. It's politically impossible to cut back. It's politically impossible to control growth. And so, well, it's biophysically impossible to keep on growing. So we've got a real dilemma. Do you try to do what's physically impossible or do you try to do what's politically impossible? You know, I'd rather take my chances with the political impossible than with the biophysically impossible. We do not have perpetual motion. We cannot create matter and energy. We only take it from the environment. Nobody's going to get elected in the next election for you know, preaching a steady state economy. This is going to require a whole lot of change of mind, change of heart, rethinking. A lot of people are beginning to see that economists are wrong about this growth forever business, that it's unreasonable, and they're beginning to feel the cost. And so I think maybe my hope is that some politicians will come along who will say, well, wait a minute, let's try it out. The subtitle of Kate Rayworth's book, Donut Economics, is Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Those seven ways serve as a remarkably excellent rundown of how our economic thinking needs to change if we're to get out of this overshoot predicament. Okay, the first way is to change the goal. The goal of economics is not simply growth. It's to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. In order to do that, we need a bigger picture of what the economy is, how it's embedded within the living world and within society and the different forms of provisioning we have in the economy, the market, the state, the household and the commons. We also need a richer picture of who we are. We're not rational economic man. We're actually social, adaptable humans. And the quicker we embrace a new portrait of ourselves, the greater chance we'll give ourselves of thriving this century. We also need to switch from the mechanical equilibrium thinking that was inspired by Newton's physical laws of motion Back in the 1870s, we need to jump into a different kind of science and embrace complexity thinking, which is a far smarter way of understanding not only the economy, but also the living world in which we are embedded. When it comes to inequality, we shouldn't just wait for growth to even things up, because it won't. We need to create economies that are distributive by design. When it comes to pollution and running down the living world, don't wait for growth to clean things up, because it won't. We need to create economies that are regenerative by design, that work together with the living processes of the world. And finally, what does that mean for growth, the old addiction of the 20th century economy? We need to overcome our addiction to unending growth and create economies that are agnostic about growth, that enable us to thrive whether or not they grow. That sounds like a simple flip in words, but it's actually a profound, radical flip in perspective. And what about solutions on the population side of the equation? Bill Ryerson again. The average American can have a better impact, a bigger impact, on improving the climate situation through limiting family size than any other change they might make. Changing the light bulbs, insulating the house, all of those things are good. But reducing family size has a much bigger impact in terms of avoiding carbon dioxide output into the atmosphere now and future generations. If we don't address the population issue, the climate and a lot of other problems are going to be completely out of hand. Population is all about human rights. It is about the rights of women to have the information, 
and the means they need to determine the number and spacing of their children. It is about the health of women and children. It is about the health of our environment. It is about the future sustainability of the planet. Matis Walkernagel again. Now, the good news is that looking at the demographic side, we know how to shift those tendencies. It's not done through control that actually backfires. It's done by empowering women, by making opportunities better for women, equal rights for everybody, access to family planning. Here in the United States, half of the pregnancies still are a surprise, sometimes a positive, sometimes a negative. If today we adopted fertility rates of Spain, Portugal, or Italy. Today, we would be back to 4 billion people by the end of the century, which would give much more budgets for paying for education and, and health care, etc., for young people, give young people a much, much better opportunity for the future. When does it stop? How many jobs can this earth possibly support? How big of a flow of income can our base of natural capital support? If we're pulling out the rug from our own kids' and grandkids' future, their employment, their income, and their environmental quality, then I think we should back up a little bit and focus in on the prospect of stabilizing both the number of jobs and then, of course, the population so that you don't have rising rates of unemployment. You'd have a stable rate of employment. There has to be a point at which we stop trying to make this thing get bigger. We need to build a civilization that can live within the means of what nature can supply. We need to get beyond this consumerism, to get beyond our hyperventilating lifestyles, our sort of overwhelming materialism, and start focusing on the things that really matter. I'm not concerned that my children will consume less stuff and have to live lifestyles more like my grandparents. I'm more concerned that my children will have to live in chaos because we were stupid and we tried to drive right past all these limits and we didn't pay heed to the fact that we're in overshoot and we ended up in 300% overshoot and our entire economies and our world crashes. That's my concern about what our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have to live through. The fact that they might have to live modest lifestyles, that doesn't concern me in the least. Isn't this the time and the place to think about changing course for a better life, not a constrained life, but a better life that respects our environment, that respects those people who don't quite have what we have, you and I have, isn't it time to be a more sharing place? Isn't it time to be a world where we believe that there are limits and that we should respect those limits? We need to redefine progress very much. We don't necessarily have to regard that as the end of the world. It's going to be a change, an end of this world and a movement into that world. But the world we move into might have some rewards that we'll be happy to have. I'm Dave Gardner. Thanks for listening to Welcome to Overshoot. Have a nice day from Conversation Earth. If you missed part of it or want to recommend it to a friend, find it at conversationearth.org or search for the Conversation Earth podcast.